Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Statz. All right, welcome to another episode of Board Game with Education. Today I'm joined by Roger. He's our guest co-host for this episode. Roger, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Dustin. So we are going to dive into this conversation with Steve D. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a game designer and how that can improve other aspects of our lives. And Roger and I are both teachers and our listeners, or you, are likely in education or doing some sort of homeschool environment or a parent. And you might want to learn a little bit about how you can leverage the same ideas in game design for teaching or for learning. And Steve is going to be giving a talk at the GBL conference coming up in April. Uh, Dave has chatted about that on the episode a couple of times. He's been a regular guest co-host and he'll be back on our next interview episode and he'll share a little bit more about the conference. But if you go to GBLconference.com, you can check out the lineup for that conference I will be giving a talk as well with a panel about using game-based learning to create a more empathetic and connected environment and with our communities and our classrooms. And if you use BGE as the code to register, you'll save 20 bucks on the conference and it helps support our podcast too. So let's listen into this conversation with Steve and then we'll come back with Roger to chat a little bit more about the conversation and to play Wits and Wagers. Welcome to another episode of Board Game with Education. I am joined with Steve D today, and we're going to look at what it means to be a game designer and how that can help improve other aspects of your life. And I'm definitely going to be framing this, like I mentioned to Steve before we hopped on this recording, as from an educator's perspective. Uh, but I'm excited to be joined by Steve today. Steve is a game designer and game publisher with Tin Star Games. Steve, can you say hello and maybe introduce yourself a little bit more? Hey, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Steve D. I, I live in Sydney, Australia. Uh, I've been working in the game industry since uh, the early 2000s, uh, and I've done all sorts of things. I, my main in, entry point was working as a freelance role-playing game designer and writer, um, and I've, I've since branched out into uh, getting published and publishing my own role-playing games and tabletop games. That's awesome. Would you mind just sharing maybe like what kind of games you publish with Ten Star Games or a little bit about one of your games? Sure. So we've uh, mostly focused on producing role-playing games. We've got a, a, a bunch of small indie RPGs that are available on the website and through itch.io. Um, and we have uh, just recently, in 2019, we successfully kickstarted Relics, which is our Big uh, hardcover role-playing game, which is about playing angels who have fallen to earth and walk among the humans. And uh, so that should be in your game stores now uh, around around the world uh, and is also available through Indie Press Revolution in the U.S. And we've also uh, recently published a family card game called Baby Dragon Bedtime, which should also be uh, appearing in stores across the world. That's super awesome. I have recently, over the last, I want to say, two years now have gotten into role-playing games. I'm not like a huge, <laughs> I, I enjoy being a GM, I found out, because I've been uh, GMing the role-playing game Mothership, if you're familiar with it. I'm not, but um, I'll look it up. Yeah, so it's like a sci-fi horror um, by Tuesday Night Games, and 
I'm sure we'll talk about this. The reason I like to kind of dive into role-playing games is because of the design uh, benefits that we're going to talk about today that you use from role-playing games that carry over into the classroom. Absolutely. Essentially, we are, we are game masters of our classroom, right? So with that, let's define the topic with the main thing we're going to talk about today. What is a game designer or what is game design? I mean, that is, that is a huge question, and it's quite an expansive field um, because humans are natural game players, and we bring that thought process to almost everything we do. Um, I think a game designer is someone who is able to understand the way that humans look for entertainment and and play and game challenges and uh, try to create those kind of experiences. Um, and that can be in all sorts of capacities. Um, there is a there is a game design book that's really good that's designed by someone who is actually what they call an imagineer at Disney. And a lot of that is about creating experiences for families to go through through their sort of theme experiences. And that's that's another way to think about a, a game as in the sense of it's interactive entertainment. When you put it in that way, you can see it's a much more expansive thing than just simply figuring out the mathematics of how to move cubes on a board. Right, right. I love how you mentioned, I mean, the, the big part of that definition is uh, as we, I guess, engage in entertainment as active participants, we're not passively part of the entertainment. And I always like to relate game design or just design with teaching because essentially as teachers, we are designers. We're designing a learning experience for our students. If I'm just maybe just now learning about game design and I want to kind of dive into this topic a little bit more from an everyday approach, what are some things that you might tell me to do or may, might ask me to think about? Uh, I have um, taught a course um, at a few companies, which is called How to Think Like a Game Designer. And one of the things that I start off with that is that the reason it's good to think like a game designer is that people actually have natural skills in this area. And if you tap into that, you not only teach people to trust their instincts, but you also give them the confidence that they have skills in this area already. And the example of that is is that when you're a young kid, you are actually quick to spot games that stop being fun. And you often have instincts about how to solve that. And that when you sort of tell people that, they get that sense of, oh, actually, I can do this. And I have some skill and I have some insight. And then they start trusting themselves and, and understanding uh, how to apply that lens. Um, the classic example is probably when you were a kid, you played a game called Tig or Tag or Tiggy or whatever you call it, where you had to chase people. And um, you quickly learn in that game that if someone who is bigger and faster than everyone else is up, they'll never be caught. Uh, sorry, he's not up. He'll never be caught. And the, the slowest person is the chaser. They'll never catch anyone. And you quickly grow out of that game because it isn't fun. And you try to come up with ways to make it more fun and more balanced. Um, and you have things like, oh, if you run inside, obviously we can't chase you. So you say things like, oh, inside is out of bounds. Um, that's something we used to, that's the phrase we used to use as kids. And right. again, kids naturally do this. Nobody teaches them. Nobody tells them these kind of things. They just kind of go, oh, that's not allowed because that's not fair. 
And that kind of natural sense that people have of what makes a game fair, what makes a game fun, what makes a game engaging uh, includes these things like fairness and a chance for success and a reward for actions. And that kind of instinctiveness, once you unlock that, you can guide people to be natural game designers and play designers. Um, so that's usually where I start with people is to, to sort of go, you know, you have these skills uh, and with a little bit of help, you can start to unlock them and see the world through the lens that you already have. That's super cool. That's It reminds me of a couple of things. And one, I don't want to get too far off track, but two friends and myself, we do a Madden football franchise and every year, we do a, we call it a legislative session where we essentially add new rules to the game and vote on them because we want to make sure none yeah. of us are kind of running away with the game. Um, cause then it's just no fun. And that reminds me yeah. of what you mentioned as, as kids, we kind of, we learn what rules to make to make sure the game is balanced. Yes, exactly. Um, and we have a natural sense of nobody wants to play it, even if they're winning. Nobody wants to play a game anymore if there's no chance that they'll lose. Um, you know, that, that, that kicks in as well. We, we have a natural sort of social thing of like, is this fun for everyone when I'm way ahead of you? Um, so it's not, it's not, it, it's, it's not a selfish instinct to go, I can't win. It's also, I can't lose. That's boring. It's a, it's a very social aspect of our, of our brains. Right. And I wonder, it makes me think of the different types of players, and then I wonder how that relates to game design. At the moment, there's a lot more academic body of work on computer game designers because that's just been where the money is and the focus. They have a bunch of different taxonomies, and they tend to build the big AAA games, AAA games for multiple game experiences. Uh, and that's slightly, the, the, there isn't as much of a body of academic work on that in tabletop. Um, but certainly designers tend to be aware of these things and some, and games can cater to different styles of play. And you can often get games where they tried to include something for everyone, but ended up not really understanding different styles of play. There's a lot of, discussion and design about how to make good cooperative games. And that is a very tricky element because it's very hard to design for very different kinds of players in a cooperative space. And some of the solutions to that, like semi-co-op, where you can't quite trust people, doesn't always work because, again, that kind of is a very different experience for a lot of players than co-op players. So it's definitely a really interesting area. Uh, there are there are different types of players, and in the last five years, as board gaming has exploded, there is even more different players who have very different ideas about what they think of as fun. And as there's become more mainstream awareness, there is a um, a need for these audiences to be catered to. And I think we're very much feeling our way through that and trying to figure out how to do that without creating games that are watered down or uninteresting. Um, computer games often have the aspect where it can be quite modular. Like you can play this game and you can completely ignore the crafting or you don't have to do any side quests, but if you're an, if you're an exhaustive explorative player, you can. And that hasn't really worked. We haven't figured out how to do that in, in 
tabletop gaming as much. Role-playing games perhaps have a bit more flexibility in that regard, but yeah, it's harder in, in tabletop games to go, here is a game that will that allows people to be approached in a modular fashion and make it more tactical or less tactical depending on their group. For sure, and it makes me makes me think about the play experiences I have with video games. I have played one that came out this last year, Ghost of Tsushima, and I'm not a player who likes to go on the side quest. I just like to go through the game, kind of experience the the very, I guess, high, intense level experiences, the boss battles. But I, then I have a friend who's like just going on all the side quests and trying to get as much done as possible as he advances. But I wonder if that's kind of, I guess, with tabletop games, I guess you can't do it. Like you mentioned, you have tabletop RPGs and maybe your different group kind of gravitates to different things within that tabletop RPG. But I guess in board games, you just have a, I guess, a wider selection. Yes, that's generally the thing. It's like, if we want to have this kind of experience, let's play this. Um, what we probably lack at the moment is a, is a very good um, sense of vocabulary of what people like and why. And we're trying to get there. We sort of have light and heavy and sort of mean and nice. Um, and we're, we're trying to explore those two aspects a little bit. Um, uh, but people, people, one person's heavy is another person's light, you know, so there's a, there's, we're still trying to figure out how to go. Will you like this game? Are you in the mood for this game or should we play something that's a bit less like X or Y? Um, but we don't have the vocabulary and that's, um, something that, at the moment is certainly something that, that a lot of academics and, and designers are talking about is how do we get a better vocabulary, both for designers, but also for the general public so that they have a way to go, Oh, that's why I don't like that game. Um, and now I, what kind of games have that thing and how do I avoid it um, by making better choices in the market? And that's something that, that um, again, I think when I used to tell people like to how to how to think like game designers, that's another reason why. Because if you have a sense of some of the mechanics of game design, you can figure out better what games you want to play with other people. Right, and maybe we can move into talking about that a little bit because one thing that is very, very—I mean, you mentioned talking about classifying tabletop games and us not really having a strong foothold of that in the industry versus video games, but it's even more true looking at game-based learning in the classroom. And I wonder, thinking about what games would work well in the classroom is something that I know that I've talked to other game-based educators. We really want to be able to classify why it works well or why this game might work in this particular situation. I think perhaps the way forward there is, uh, obviously we we, we put so much of a a burden on teachers to to understand everything. Certainly there's a, there's a, is trying to give them some of the skills or at least some of the background to make a choice like that. Um, and, um, there's a sense of, there's something that's being discussed is that every game should come with teacher notes, um, so that it can be used in a classroom and, and used in interactions in, in education. Um, obviously it doesn't work for every single game, but it, it, we're, we're becoming as aware of, of how much play and gaming is great for education, um, how games may be the best way to teach so many things. So it makes sense to sort of think about, okay, it, it comes back to sort of 
trying to tap into as many markets as possible. We now know one of our huge markets are teachers and, and schools. Let's you know, play to that by going, right, here's your historical notes. Here's which mechanics work. Here's how I would use it in a classroom. You, you know, it's not impossible to put a teacher's note page in every, in a, in a, in a, in a board game um, at the end of the rules or something. I'd like, I'd really like to see more of that sort of thing done. Right. Yeah. I know one company, actually I know two companies that do it as almost it, it comes as a part of their game design. I want to say for most of their games, maybe not, if not all, but genius games, they do science-based games and uh, capital gains studios, a board game publishing company in Singapore that does economics-based games. And they both come with like a, a learning guide or a teaching guide. Um, could be something great. I mean, I think also for parents, is another way, way to, to approach that question because a lot of, uh, you know, parents have become very keen again in the last couple of years to get kids off screens and um, you want to, if you can give them a thing like, here's how to teach this to young children, um, uh, you know, so that there's a guide for that and here's what kind of skills it uses and, um, you know, if you like this kind of game and it's working well, then you can also try this or that. Um, it could even be on websites or something, but yeah, it's um, it's something that we need to be aware of that this is um, that that there's an overlap as well. Uh, that gaming is a kind of teaching, and teaching is a kind of gaming. Perhaps um, there's a, or as you said earlier, being a GM has a lot of overlap with teaching, but so does teaching a board game, how to play it, and presenting that as an experience, and it's a shared learning experience um, and a puzzle-solving experience. So there's all this overlap, so we might as well, you know, feature it and play to it and talk about it. Right. I mean, you bring up a really good point, too, that teaching a board game, that's that's a skill, and it's developing other skills in itself. So even, <laughs> even just right there, um, it's awesome. Yeah, I've just seen in the last couple of... Uh, months a couple of different um uh so there's a lot of youtube channels and, and twitch channels about reviewing games and talking about games but just recently there's been some about how to teach games and using educational theory like how to teach to games to kinesthetic players how to teach games to visual players um how to teach heavy games how to teach light games and um being aware that if you're the if you're the nerd who brings the new games, you are the teacher. You better be good at teaching. Um, is again a great thing, right? And that's I mean that's awesome because it's essentially the people that are the board game ambassadors that are bringing more into the hobby are the ones that are teaching the game and having those skills to be able to teach them well. In turn, brings more people into the hobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen a lot of people turned away because somebody's gone. You've never played a board game before. We're going to throw you straight into something really complex and dense. You know, we're going to teach you, uh, and we're going to throw all the expansions in at once. Um, and uh, sometimes through no fault of their own. Like I actually, I had I had some friends who who wanted to get into board gaming. They heard good things about Carcassonne. They bought the big box expansion because they thought, oh, we'll get the most value. And then they put all the expansions in at once because they didn't really get that it's supposed to be modular, and they didn't like it because they were like trying to learn. 15 games at once. Um, and yeah, there wasn't a sense of, um, uh, you know, games can't, don't come with a person to teach them to you. Um, and we have to be aware of that fact. Um, uh, and, and again, be, be smart about how we design perhaps so that we understand that some people, 
that there's an, an element of, um, of advocacy and teaching and communication in that is part of our hobby that we cannot get, a, get away from. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, um, if we can eliminate that barrier of learning a game in any way, it would be good. Yeah. Every game designer faces that problem. First, you have to design a game. Then you have to design a system to teach that game so that when you open the box, people can get to play how it is supposed to be played. And that is a different art from designing a game in itself. And um, that's another good example where role-playing games are actually really interesting because the text of the role-playing game is so crucial. Like, the rule book is the game. So if you have role-playing game design skills, you are used to going, I'm going to teach this to you page by page which can be helpful when you're designing rule books for board games and things. Right, and you bring up another good point that I kind of had a chance to chat about this on the episode, on a previous episode, both with Eric Slauson and Kim Tolson in separate episodes. We talked about the ability to communicate through a rule book or to communicate through online, through an online setting and to be able to do that through game design and be able to create your rule book so it communicates how to play the game is another skill that I think is really important for, I mean, teaching especially and definitely other areas of your life as well. And again, uh, something that, that is really, um, we're becoming more aware of. There are now people who are specialist rule games writers, uh, rule book writers, I should say. And, we'll, you know, you can go, right, my game is fixed. I've written a rule book, but it's time to bring in an expert to make sure it's a really good rule book. And, and I'm, sure, I'm sure people from an education background would be great at, um, at at having that skill, right? Yeah, the very I guess technical writing skills is definitely. I mean, yeah, I would say most teachers have that have a pretty strong skill when it comes to communicating. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to ask maybe another topic we can kind of talk about before we kind of wrap up is I know for me I've really enjoyed the creative and innovative side of using some of the things I've learned from game design and bringing that into my classroom. For example, I did a whole course and gamified it by throwing a Sherlock theme around it and using different language within my classroom. I created Google Classrooms online and they were named like London instead of actually like Google Classroom English 101 or whatever. I wonder if you could share any thoughts on using that creative, innovative side as a part of your everyday life and how that maybe carries over from game design. I think I think one thing you've really hit on there is that um, the purpose of theme in games is to help communicate what is important um, and what has value and to give things a bit of, not only a little bit of excitement and a bit of um, fantasy and imagination, but a, a way of, of creating value. Everyone understands that Sherlock Holmes is a detective trying to solve a mystery. And so that's very clear and very communicative. And um, one thing we always do, the thing about you know, game design is it, is it abstracts things down to who are you, what are you trying to do, and what are the obstacles? And then being able to present that sort of thing with a thematic point of view is a really good learning about how to communicate things. Um, so game design teaches you how do I make sure the player's value the things that are important and work towards them the way I want them to. And that's perfect for teaching. And as you say, and the creative part of that, the, the illustrative part of that is using commonly understood 
aspects of fiction and our own world uh, to attach to these things so that people naturally have an emotional connection that can get around in sort of an analytical thing um, and make people feel uh, they can learn without feeling like they're learning in that sense because they, they, they've stepped into this character. And um, I think that's, if you're, if you're ever, it, it can be, it can be, it can appear trite, but I think that's a, just an, a good skill to have again, to go like, what is a way that I can communicate the value and meaning of this through analogy or connection? Uh, one thing that I do as well as game design is I work as a dog trainer. Um, and a lot of what I have to do is explain the dog's thinking to the human. And so that involves a kind of character role play where I go, okay, imagine you're a dog and you think the bin is full of delicious food. And then the human ties it up and takes it away from you and you feel like, oh, well, that's my food. Um, and that's the kind of example of role play as a way of teaching. And um, in a similar sense, if you're trying to communicate an idea with people, you go, okay, if this is, if this thing represents you know, Superman and this represents Lex Luthor or whatever, then you know they're going to fight or something like that. Or Dr. Sherlock Holmes is going to try to solve a mystery. That tells people there's a progression going on. Um, and I think, yeah, using the, our, our own internal logic and knowledge and um, uh, personal reaction to fictional and, and character is a really good way just to get people to immediately understand the goals and methods and processes that are going on. Um, so never shy away from, from adding that little bit of color to it. That's really awesome. I think you hit something really important, especially when it comes to creating. I know a lot of teachers out there look at to gamifying their course and why theme and flavor is important because, like you mentioned, you're highlighting something that's important. And if you're throwing a theme on to an assignment that's part of your gamified course, then your students are going to see that as something important and part of the entire, I guess, gamified experience. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And and you end up, you can teach multiple things at a time because you have, uh, which teachers, again, have sort of become familiar with, where they that, that sort of integrated learning where, um, on the one hand, you're writing an essay as if you were, you know, an American colonial person. You're learning about essay writing, but you're also learning about the history and you're learning about, empathy and points of view and and um so teachers again have a natural game design skill of how do i put a skill into a thematic context um so there's a great o overlap there already right and that's more more role playing too right yeah exactly yeah um i mean that's i i, I think i fell in love with role playing when i was in primary school and we were doing exercises like that writing a you know, write an essay as if you are someone from the, you know, this time period or write an essay as if you were a robot and that sort of thing. That, that was something that I was doing and loving long before I found out what role-playing games were. That's awesome. All right, Steve. So before we head into our game, is there any maybe last words you might share with someone that's thinking about game design, the practice of game design and how they can incorporate that either in teaching or in their everyday life? I think this is a really good time to do it um, because there's never been more information about it. Um, there is, as I said, there's a bit of a gap in some of the academic knowledge, but there are, you know, dozens of podcasts um, that take a really academic point of view as well. And, and um, so there's a, there's a great variety depending on how you want to start learning. There's a great variety of books and YouTube shows and, and 
just a lot of information at the moment about how to be a game designer and you can go and study courses. I used to run courses in Australia and there are courses that um, are, you can do around the world that are you know, short things that just give you some of that skills. Um, and there's materials and packages and groups and people. So if you're interested at all in game design, find your local game designers because I'm guaranteed there will be some and you can learn a little bit and it's it's not a big mysterious world. We are we're living in a world where you can now just dip your toe in and learn a little bit at a low kind of investment um, in a in an introductory way and get started and find it if you want to use it more. So this is a great time to do that. That's awesome. And you mentioned some books. I'm going to throw you on the spot here. Do you have a good recommendation of a book to start with? There's a great book called uh, The Cobbled Guide to Game Design. I think it's called as in K-O-B-O-L-D, um, which is by Cobbled Press. Um, Cobbled Guide to Game Design. It's a series of short essays um, by famous game designers, um, collected by Mike Selinker, who's a legendary game designer. Um, and it just, because it's each one is just a little separate essay, it's nice and easy to read, and it's a great place to start. And um, if you want something a bit heavier, there's a book called The Theory of Fun, and I can't remember who wrote it. Um, that was that was uh, my suggestion, so I'll hop in with the author. Yeah. It's Ralph Koster. That, yes, yeah. Koster's Theory of Fun. Uh, there's also the book, the, uh, the, the, the Imagineer book that I recently read is called Game Designer Book of Lenses. Um, and that's, again, a bit heavier, um, but it also has an approach where it's basically got 101 lenses in it, um, which means it's by Jesse Scoble, uh, sorry, Jesse Shell, who, um, again, was an Imagineer, and it looks at all different types of kind of games, uh, types of games, but it, it does it as these, what they call a lens, like how to look at your game through X lens, like, and that, some of them are really complex, but some of them are really simple. So if you, again, want to dip your toe into, you can get this from the library, look through the first 10, learn the lenses, and, and that will give you, again, a, a way to sort of go, oh, I can see how this is a science and this is a this is a process and uh, and it's a it's a good it's a good building block to work through. Awesome! I'm going to add those two to my to my reading list now. I can't pronounce his name very well, but Ignacy Trzeciakwik, who is a, a narrative designer who designed uh, Robinson Crusoe and I think it's called uh, First Martians, um, wrote a, wrote some books called Games That Tell Stories, and that taps into what we've been talking about, about how theme adds meaning. Uh, Ignacy's really fascinated by the way that you can use game mechanics to produce story as well as using story to tell about mechanics. And um, he's written some, again, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a series of bite-sized essays. Uh, um, so, again, it's a great way to get in and um, is more in that narrative element. Right, and maybe before we go on the game too, is stories are are really excellent way to solidify learning too because when you're tying in learning into a story it's very easy to remember the learning yes. as a part of a story absolutely yeah uh, and that, again it's that, that carryover between um gaming and and education um the story gives it that meaning and that sense of logic it's like oh yeah we want to go and rescue the princess from the castle that's why we're doing this just much more clearer than get to goal zone. <laughs> right. All right, Steve, stick around. We're going to play a game after a little chat with Roger.
And so we're back. Roger, what were some of the first things that kind of stood out to you or what did you find really interesting about the conversation with Steve? Um, I, I like how he was talking about how us as people, like we're just uh, humans, like we're just like natural game players, um, which I thought was very, very interesting. Um, and then the way kind of we, you think about, you know, designing games, it just reminds me of that, that this book that I read from um, McGonagall, um, you know, Reality is Broken. And, and she kind of talks about a lot of those kind of concepts in, in this book about how we're, our brains are kind of wired um, to play games. And we've been doing that for a long period of time and why there's this this appeal to it and, and why a lot of people are drawn to it. Um, and whether they agree with that or not, you know, they go, well, I don't you know, maybe I don't play board games, with the, but I bet you a lot of people play something. Or they, they do like to do something. And you go, well, I don't do that. I mean, I used to ask my students that, like, well, I don't play games. Well, do you play sports? Yeah. Well, that's a game. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's just funny how they just, they don't, I mean, gaming, I think, encompasses a huge, broad uh, amount of, you know, topics and whatever that, that fit into it. I mean, it's just not board games, there's video games, there's, you know, all kinds of things. And then we, you know, I, I don't know hardly anybody that doesn't enjoy something. You know, they, they play, you know, some kind of game or whatever. I mean, my mom and, you know, brother or whatever. I mean, everybody in my family's, you know, maybe not as avid board gamers as me, but do, they do do, do something. They do do something like that or, right. or they follow something or whatever. Like you maybe you don't participate, but you like to watch it. You know, I mean, if you're into sports or whatever, I mean, those are, they're all everything. Those are all games. Right, right. I think. Um, one thing that, that I've been doing in my course, we're looking at, uh, the game Among Us, games and human behavior is the title of the course. And one thing we talked about recently, and I love that some of the things that Steve brought up is drawing these parallels between game design or games and life. And one thing that I had brought up is the magic circle. And you mentioned sports. When we're playing a sport, when we're kicking a ball into the net, that's what that is called if you're not playing soccer. If you're playing soccer, it's called scoring a goal. And creating this magic circle of these agreed-upon terms is really cool where in our course I was able to draw those parallels between the magic circle and other aspects of life and how in society we kind of have these agreed-upon norms and how that's really important. And another thing that I really love that Steve had demonstrated is this idea of tag and we get really tired of it pretty quick when we're playing just tag, when it's just I tag you, you're it, because what ends up happening is there's that standout tag player who never becomes it, and there's the tag player that's always it, and that's just no fun for everyone, and we just have this general or instinctive tendency as kids to create these other rules to make the game a bit more interesting and a bit more fun. Yeah, that was a good point, too, that he made. And uh I don't know, it just kind of makes me kind of think that i i really think this this whole hobby or what we're kind of wired to do is can be so inclusive to everybody but you know then sometimes you get you know kind of some natural like well i don't like that so maybe you know and me you could disagree with somebody i, I don't enjoy it but i i have a little problem with you know when somebody kind of gets to the point where they're almost like giving somebody a hard time or maybe kind of attacking them and maybe in a subtle way that, oh, well, that's not a game, you know, your game's not as good as mine. 
And, you know, that's, that's, that's fine. That could be the case, but I think sometimes we got to kind of be careful about that. And I think that's why maybe, you know, it steers people away from certain things, but I think it's kind of some, uh, maybe some inherent human thing that we kind of take ownership of certain things like, Oh, you know, this is my game. And, uh, you know, maybe I don't want other people in it, which I, I find kind of odd, but, you know, I think some people kind of think that way sometimes, but I think we got to kind of be careful with that sort of thing. You know, I think as as teachers and stuff like that, that's the one thing we're always trying to avoid, isn't it? I mean, we're we're always working on inclusivity, you know, and being inclusive of everybody and, and making sure that that you know everybody has a voice and you know, and that that matters. And that those are good skills, right, to go out into the real world with, you know, so that you're not you know ostracizing people or whatever. You know, and I think sometimes we even do it not on purpose either. But I think, you know, if you're really uh, as a teacher, that's something I think you're really you really try to be aware of. Right. And I think um, that's another point Steve had brought up, too, is that there are different types of players and there are different types of students. And as teachers, like you mentioned, we need to be very conscious of how to involve the different students in our learning experience and what that means and I always say this on the podcast episode, ever since I started like looking at game theory and game design, I've realized how similar it is and how many skills overlap between that and teaching. Um, it's crazy how, how similar it is. Well, yeah. I mean, even when you're teaching a game, I mean, you're using a lot of, uh, you know, teaching skills and so on. You know, and I think some people that are not even teach, you know, might not be teachers. You know, I'm, I'm sure we've had people in our game groups. Like, hey, I like that that guy, that person, or whatever, whoever it is. They're really good at he or she's really good at you know teaching that game. Would probably be good teachers in some senses. I'm sort of, you know, like, oh, well, I don't want to do that, but I go, well, you'd be good at it. You know, because you got it. <laughs> you have a lot of the you know the skills and stuff to, that would make you effective. Yeah, and one one other point that I think that is really important that Steve brought up, and I would. I would recommend if you're interested in diving this, diving into this topic more as a teacher and using a lesson and gamifying that lesson is something he mentioned to use theme to drive what is important in the game. And that's a pretty, pretty in-depth topic. I would recommend checking out the Board Game Design Lab podcast and uh, blog and you can search um, theme in games and there'll be some interesting episodes about that. But as a teacher, we can use theme to gamify our lesson and create this kind of uh, mystery. I've kind of I've done this with World XP in the past, but um, so for example, you have students complete various tasks and they unlock parts of the story in those tasks that relate to the learning. Again, this this topic of using theme to drive what's important is like more than one entire podcast episode worth of content. So. And maybe that's something we can talk about in the future. But if you're curious now and you don't want to wait for us to bring it up, I would check out that podcast, Board Game Design Lab. That's about game design. But I'm sure there's some things that you could take away as an educator or someone who's trying to design the experience for students and learning. Anything else to, to add before we jump into our game? No, let's go ahead and do it. All right, so we are going to play Wits and Wagers, and 
we've played this before, so you, you kind of know the drill, but just for anyone listening, here is how to play. All right, so we're going to move into our game, and I mentioned we're going to play a podcast version of Wits and Wagers. So I'm going to ask you a question, you'll give me a number based on what you think the number is, and then I'll give you three other numbers. They could be correct, they could be way off, and you'll have a choice to either double down on your number for three points, or, well, I guess you would get two bonus points, or choose one of the other numbers uh, for one point. And you'll be competing against the co-host, so whoever's closest will score a point. So just a recap on points. Whoever's closest gets one point, if you double down in your answer and you're still closest out of all the other answers, you get two more points. Or you can choose a different number for just one more point. So, Roger, we have our our question or statement. And this is the question. In kilometers, so I realized I matched I matched you up who is a you are a runner and a biker. So you might be pretty familiar with this answer, maybe. Maybe I'm putting you up there and you're it, maybe you'll be way off. I don't know. We'll see. So in kilometers, what is the furthest someone has run without stopping? Run without stopping. Um, wow, well, I don't know. Just, I don't know. Is this like a race or just in general? Well, I don't know. Um, yeah. So it's just, I think it's, I know the answer. So based on that, it's it's just uh, run without stopping. So not necessarily a race, just something this person did to run without stopping. I know I'm going to be way off on this, but I'd say 160 kilometers plus. 160 kilometers. All right, let's listen to Steve's answer. All right. So the the question is in kilometers, what is the furthest someone has run without stopping? Oh, it's uh, probably quite a lot. Uh, I'm going to say um, 200. 200 kilometers. Yeah. All right. So he went with 200. You're mm-hmm. pretty close. You said 160, yeah. right? And here are the other fake answers. So 432 kilometers, 500 kilometers, or 1,354 kilometers. So you can double down on your answer, or you can switch and choose one of those three. Okay. So it was, you said 1,000? Uh, 432, 500, 1,354. Yeah, five. I'll I'll go five hundred. Five hundred. All right. Let's listen to what Steve did. All right. So here are the other responses: four hundred and thirty-two kilometers, five hundred kilometers, and one thousand three hundred and fifty-four kilometers. All right. I'm going to go for. I'm going to so switch can... to four thirty-two. So he went with four thirty-two. You went with five hundred. The final answer is 563. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so you you won that one because of the switch. <laughs> nice. Sure. Awesome. So thank you again, Roger, for coming on. And we'll be back in season 12. Um, that will probably be sometime in April with you and I. But we'll have another episode next week with Dave. Yep. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Dustin. Cool, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your insight on game design. If anyone wanted to reach out to you or if you have any projects coming up, would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, so uh, we are Tin Star Games everywhere. So it's tinstargames.com. That's tin like the metal, like the Old West Tin Star. Um, so tinstargames.com is our website. We are at Tin Star Games on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and we are going to be doing some more stuff for Relics coming up. Um, this year we're going to do another Kickstarter. So if you're interested in Angels 
and demons and, you know, you, you like supernatural or uh, Lucifer or any kind of stuff like that, I think you get a big kick out of the RPG and we're really hoping to uh, get it out there and more people playing it and testing it. So um, look out for that. Um, it should be in your game stores and we should be doing um, yeah, a Kickstarter where we're release, releasing a, a new supplement and we're going to, of course, re- resend out copies of the game. So if you missed it the first time, you'll be able to get it. Um, so that's coming up uh, early next year. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Steve. As always, thank you for listening. But two things before we go this week. If you're interested in that virtual game-based learning conference, go to gblconference.com. Use the coupon code BGE to save some money on that conference, and it also helps support our podcast. Also, Sign up for our newsletter. That is the best way to keep up to date with everything going on with Board Game of Education. You'll have updates from our Instagram, our YouTube, our podcast. We also love to share awesome resources we come across. And all and any resources we develop for our community are available through our newsletter as well. Uh, We like to highlight things going on in the game-based learning space. So be sure to sign up for our newsletter. That's the best way to keep up to date with things going on with Board Game with Education and get some resources and insights into game-based learning and gamification. That's BoardGameWithEducation.com, and the newsletter will be one of the first things you see on our page. Or you can go to BoardGameWithEducation.com podcast-community, and it will be the first thing you see on the page. All right, until next week. Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time. <laughs>